0: George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories. You now we every haven't damn done a week. roundup
1: of other podcasts about opera late lately. Late, late. Uh, we, we know mean, we, we love our Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock. Is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week.
0: These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins.
1: So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media, or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things. Look, you know?
0: 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus. We could share the mask, yeah. That is not gonna work. <laughs> yes, right. The
2: mask is not even gonna work. We're all doomed. The Olympics are
0: canceled. Thank mm. you, Matt Cummings. Look, don't think you can give, oh yes you can, simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or just retweet okay. us. It and tell
1: people, hey, I like this podcast and that guy Oliver here, he's so
0: Single. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast.
3: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box
0: Score. Uh, let's get
3: ready to rumble!
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live but just a podcast for now. About opera, period. That was a mouthful. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, also known as my living room. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave in segments patched together through the magic of Facebook, Messenger, and Zoom. All right, tonight... Which soprano sang more than 80 different roles, spinning out long phrases and operas ranging from Zalamé to Norma? Find out when Matt makes his next pick for the OBS Hall of Fame. But first, Oliver goes inside the huddle with baritone John Taylor Ward, a darling of the contemporary and early music concert scenes and the co-founder of Minnesota's Lakes Area Music Festival. And then two-minute drill more COVID-19-related stories, including the life of Terrence McNally, which has been extinguished by this pandemic. And, of course, you can give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. Email operaboxscore at gmail.com. Tweet us at operaboxscore. Post on our Facebook page. Two weeks ago, I had no idea what Zoom was. And now I feel like an expert. This is the bizarre thing about the COVID-19 pandemic is that like now everybody has had to learn how to use Zoom. Or maybe I'm just like totally far behind anyway. Olympics are gone. That was predictable. I think we all saw that coming. I think it was Matt who perhaps on our show at least knew that that was going to happen at some point. Wimbledon, very likely gone. I've been teaching my son to play tennis as school is now entirely in my hands. and You got to do something with recess. So we've been playing tennis. I think Oliver would be proud of that, probably. But Wimbledon, very likely gone for the summer as well. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up.
3: Let's go inside the huddle.
0: John Taylor Ward has been praised by the New Yorker for his, quote, stylish abandon and by the Washington Post for, quote, finely calibrated precision and heart-rending expressivity. He performs regularly with the world's leading Baroque ensembles and organizations, including La Paggiata, Boston Early Music Festival, Les Arts Florissons, and the English Baroque Soloists. Not limited to early music, he also has an equally active career on the concert stage, making headway into the contemporary music scene, co-founding the New York-based collective Cantata Profana, And as one of the inaugural artists of Barbara Hannigan's Equilibrium Young Artists, Ward joined Oliver on Facebook Messenger to talk about the upcoming season of Lakes Area Music Festival. But they begin their conversation talking about his career, launching experiences, specializing in historically informed performances. Here's a snippet of John singing Monteverdi with voices of music.
4: I've been incredibly fortunate to have a lot of these young artist experiences. One of the things that really drew me to the Baroque scene in in the beginning through uh, undergraduate and graduate school was the possibility of working in real sort of leading roles and getting really meaty parts right after school, um, as opposed to maybe being covering things and you know doing scenes and things like that, I was really hungry to be on stage. Um, and so partially in pursuing that Jardin des Voix, um, I received a fellowship after I graduated from Yale in 2013 to uh, go and study privately in Paris. And so there I could really focus on those upcoming auditions and yeah, had had an absolutely amazing experience with uh Le Jardin des Voix and with Les Arts Florissant in terms of not only being able to work with these people who are at you know the very top of the field, but also getting a sense, maybe for the first time, of what a real touring schedule is like uh, when you're when you're going around the world and doing those things. So yeah, it was it was an amazing opportunity. Um from there I sort of started becoming bicontinental and mm. and going back and forth between Europe and the about. states as much as possible.
1: What was that? <laughs> Nothing. I just got a little aroused when you said that. So <laughs>
4: it happens, it happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've um had had the great pleasure of working with all of those people. Was lucky enough to early on um start working with Lar Uh, A funny story about that is uh, we think of of groups like that as being so huge and unattainable. And I remember when I was first, uh, when I had first moved to Paris, uh, my sort of uh, M.O. was I would just email 10 conductors or ensembles a day with my recordings and my resume and all of that. And I was so impressed and touched that uh, Christina Pluhart, responded personally, I think within a day, to just my random solicitation as a young person and invited me into her home where the audition was about an hour long of her just playing URBO and talking about music with me. And I think it's been really, again, lucky for me that I've gotten to meet these people who are interested in not only if I can just sort of nail an audition, but are interested in talking about musical ideas and really looking for colleagues who are going to be bringing something to the table and who are ready to collaborate in a true sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, first of all, I don't know Christina Pluhar, but I'm a huge fan and, um, early on. And when she started engaging on Facebook, like if you wished her happy birthday, she would like, like it. Like she's just, mm-hmm, she seems mm-hmm. like so approachable, you know? yeah absolutely but uh so i we tend to not explore people's training and biographies that much on this show because that's content that people can find um on your website but i do want to ask you like you did already mention a couple of things that you did like some stepping stones and if you were to draw a map for somebody a roadmap for somebody that was that wanted to emulate your career what were some of the 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 you know, the main points that you'd hit i mean going to yale obviously is one of them but you know you're talking about being entrepreneurial and like sending emails to conductors and stuff like this is there anything else that we're missing about how you just made your presence known in this business
4: oh that's a great question i have i have always been even through my school years i think a little bit hard-headed in the sense that i really wanted to be uh Leading my own projects. As much as I love working for and with other people, something that's always been really nourishing to me is getting to create things on my own. And um, that is uh, part of the reason that at this point I can self produce in a way almost 30 or 40% of my work, which I think helps keep me fresh and helps keep me engaged in what i'm doing and it also gives me a really uh an interesting perspective when i'm working for other people i know what it's like to be producing the things that they're producing i know what it's like to be leading and hopefully that sort of thing can make me a better colleague i would also add to that that i think um the the advice that i give to young singers the most often is that as much as we all have to try to perfect our craft on the sort of level of everything that is going on, one thing that it's really important not to lose is to find something that you individually do well, something that's weird about you or something that's different um, and to really find opportunities to nourish that and to show that to people. Um, because I think that's, that's something that really gets you noticed.
1: One of the biggest regrets of my recent life is not having been able to go to Europe to see Barbara Hannigan's uh, Equilibrium program presentation of The Rake's Progress. Um, the friend of the show, Douglas Williams, who was our interview guest a couple of years ago, one of my favorite interviews, um, I knew that he was singing Nick's Shadow. And it turns out, so were you. I was! yeah. Um,
4: That that program is so excellent, and I think it speaks a lot to what I've tried to do with my career and what so many other people um, are doing that are sort of on the cutting edge of music and of music performance. Um, I can't speak for Barbara Hannigan, but from what I got from the program, especially from being sort of in the inaugural group of people that were doing it, is it's the perspective of a performer saying, hmm, these are some things that I don't really like or that I don't think are really helpful in how music production is made. So I'm going to take that on myself and try to design a space for people um, to create together and to create an artist-led uh Ensemble is the wrong word, but an artist led initiative that's trying to come up with new solutions and new ways of how to create opera, how to create concerts and how to how to foster the best artistry that we can from artists.
1: Hmm. I mean, she's incredible and she's an enigma and she seems sometimes like batshit crazy from what she does. But, um, can you just tell us a little bit about her and like what it's like to work with her?
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's so wonderful to work with these people um when they have their mentor hat on. I think we are all um that's such an opportunity to be generous to other people, and that's such a a beautiful thing to be on the receiving end of um so working with her, especially when she had this sort of laboratory, um, where, where she was leading it, where she was designing the experience, we really got an immersive, uh, sort of approach to the work that we were doing. So it's not just about learning the music and rehearsing it. It's about daily yoga classes. It's about examining and discussing the way that we approach performance. It's about um you know maybe identifying some of our own psychology that's wrapped up in our performance and how that either helps or hinders us so i think uh her just who she is as an artist and a person allowed for everybody that was involved to not only be working on the music but to be working on and examining the way they approach anything in their lives. And I felt that that was just an amazing opportunity.
1: Well, without even knowing that you did that program, I would say that you are a performer who is really um, physically inhabited into the music you perform. Like you're just so striking to look at. First of all, I mean, you're beautiful, but you're also so physically engaged and almost risky in how you use your body in your performance and it seems like I appreciate a, that. It seems like a perfect match to work with Barbara. I mean, does she talk about that and how involved the body is, and how the body can be expressive in ways that are extra musical?
4: of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think while another amazing thing about Barbara is that she is not um trying to impose her own ideas of physicality or vocalism or drama on you. She's trying to help you find your voice and your body and how that can all work together. Um, So I think just like I was talking about the sort of psychology of performance and you find out what is working for you and what is working against you, I'd say very similarly, you're also talking about the physicality. What what about your physicality uh, of a piece? is working for you and what is working against you and how the how is that tension affecting the performance and how can you really use that physicality to make the presentation um as as strong as the vocalism is
1: earlier on as you were developing your artistic persona do you ever feel that you weirded out audiences
4: it's my favorite
1: feeling it's what
4: (laughs) I hope to do every time in some way yeah no I don't and maybe this is just uh who I am but no I I as both an audience member and as a performer like I love making people a little bit uncomfortable Mm. because I think that that's when that's at least when I, as an audience member, really lean in to a performance It's when there's something about it. And I don't mean uncomfortable in the sense of like, ooh, that sounds like that hurts or that looks, you know, uncomfortable or something like that. I mean, I feel like our reaction as audience members of discomfort is often the same thing as saying that the performer has put their finger on something that maybe you hadn't thought before or something they've accessed something that is very capital T true. Those kinds of truths are often really uncomfortable. And I love giving and receiving that feeling. I think it's so powerful.
1: Okay. uh, I'll take it. I mean, I haven't been to everything you've done, but I definitely have seen artists who are of your generation or younger who are trying to explore this and maybe don't always do it right. And I just cringe. (laughs) Uh,
4: Yes. I mean, there is, there is a fine line between cringing and, and sort of just unsettling. But for me, it's, it's something that I think is a really powerful tool that performing artists have.
1: So you are already at age, you said 33, um, administrating and producing work, not just, for yourself, like with something like Cantata Profana, which we don't even have time to talk about, but people should look up your Joe's Pub performance of Cantata Profana, which is very easy to find on YouTube. Uh, but you are now the our Associate Artistic Director of the Lakes Area Music Festival, which I understand began in 2009?
4: It did. I founded it sort of accidentally with my friend Scott Likens when we were both 21, Mm, um, underachiever. We underachiever. <laughs> we were at the Eastman School of Music, and there was a group of about five of us who had not gotten into any of the summer programs that we wanted to go to. And he, who is from Brainerd, Minnesota, uh, which is where the festival is, uh, he had a hookup for an amazing restaurant job at a gourmet restaurant that was attached to a resort that included housing, three meals a day, and uh, really, really upscaled dining. And um, so we all went there for the summer and started putting on concerts just to sort of keep our chops up. Uh, it was a kind of odd ensemble. It was three of us singers, one, uh, cellist and pianist, which is Scott. And, uh, one violist, Alex Pena, who's now our education director. Um, so by the end of the summer, these, the audiences had grown from about 40 people to about 300. And we realized that we had happened upon a market that really was looking for something like this. Um, and we, by the end of the summer, we convincing some people from the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and Minnesota Orchestra to come up and do chamber music. And from there, it has expanded to. Now we're hiring 200 artists every summer uh, and putting on everything from chamber music to full productions of opera and ballet, not to mention year round education and outreach programs. Uh, Yeah, we're. Can you? It's
1: become his. Oh, go ahead. Oh, since most people don't know this festival, myself included, can you just. Give an example of like a weekend or a week at Lakes area and what an audience might see like when when the festival is at its best, when, you know, the right artists are there and the audience enthusiastic. What does that look like?
4: Well, that in addition to a sort of musical and performance aspect, uh, there's also a community aspect to that because the area that it's in is technically one of the poorest downtowns in Minnesota. However, it has a lot of summer recreational visitors. So one of the things that's very important to us is that all of these productions uh, that are bringing artists from around the world are all presented for free. Um, so not only are we hiring 200, 200 artists, uh, but also we are, uh, using over 300 volunteers. Uh, there's community engagement with the jails, with the restoration of the town, with the economic development of the town and trying to really put the creative arts at the center of remaking this, this town that has been hit hard by the economic changes of the past 50 years. Um, so in addition to, for instance, the the current plan for the season uh, you would see during the second week of the three-week festival, the first weekend would be a ballet adaptation with a few vocal soloists of Ramos Platé with new choreography by the Dutch-based uh, dance collective House of Makers. That following Wednesday would be a chamber music concert featuring Crum's Voice of the Whale, and half a recital by the Queen Elizabeth Competition winner Henry Kramer, pianist, uh, in some uh, beautiful old abandoned rail yards from the late 19th century. And then the next weekend, that Friday and Saturday, you would see Wagner's Flying Dutchman, a full production featuring soloists from the Metropolitan Opera, um, in a brand new production created for that space. So that's. That's that'll be my favorite week.
1: So your business model relies then on donations, or you like have a hat at the door of each performance. Like, how are you getting this number of for artists? we sure a
4: hat. <laughs> yeah, and this is again. I mean, we're talking about these sort of new artist-led um, ensembles and institutions that are really uh, trying to find new ways of funding and creating art. Um, so of course, there is a hat at every event. Something that we're very proud of is that 70% or thereabouts of our yearly budget, which is about $600,000, comes from individual donations. Um, Another, let's say, 20 or 15% comes from grants, and here I'm just sort of guesstimating. And uh, there's also a bit of earned income from special events and some corporate sponsorship. But in large part, the festival can continue based on the community's individual investment in what we're doing. And that's really powerful because it it breeds a really engaged audience who is is not only uh, donating to this or attending our programs, but is also hosting these musicians in their homes, is providing meals for them, is getting to know them on a personal level, and is getting to see and enjoy the impact that importing 200 fascinating talented people from all over the world what it can do for a community like brainerd
1: Hmm. well the flying dutchman is scheduled for august and it features kyle albertson felicia moore And, um, well, those are the big, the big names there. And, uh, Adrian Kramer, who I heard a long time ago when he was a young artist at Ravinia Festival, very handsome guy.
4: Oh, lovely. Yeah.
1: Um, so, and then you're doing a kind of a concept version of Plate with Jason McStoots as, uh, Plate and, um, Anna Dennis, oh my gosh, as La Folie. (laughs) She's incredible. Um, and you're singing Jupiter. Yeah, I am. Uh. This recital with um, the other Kramer, the Harry Kramer, is he doing a recital with a a singer or is it just a solo piano recital?
4: It will be, uh, the first half will be a solo piano recital Mm -hmm. and then the second half will be Crumb's Voice of the Whale Uh with Emmy Ferguson, flute and Austin Fisher cello.
1: And how do you use the vocal fellows that are part of this program?
4: That is so interesting. Uh, this is the first year we've started this Vocal Fellowship. And it's a bit funny because I've I've done, of course, things like Jardin de Voix or the Equilibrium Young Artists. But in terms of the sort of American young artist singer scene, I've never participated in any of it. And now I find myself um, leading a program like that.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um So since this is the first year, um, I am currently working very hard to try to find that balance of giving them exposure. They're covering roles in both Dutchman and Platé. Some of them will play small roles in Platé. Um, they will be participating in some special events, like we have a cabaret event um, that they'll be involved with and also just sort of making sure that uh, they are not just being that their talent isn't just being used but is being fostered so currently one thing i'm working very hard on is trying to develop a schedule that is humane for them Mm -hmm. because i know from experience that singers need some time off but is also more than just a sort of meat grinder of performances and repertoire i'm looking at different ways of coaching and lectures and things like that that is going to make sure that it's a program that's enriching for them giving them performance opportunities and also incorporating them into our productions
1: well if learning how to sear a fillet of salmon is part of your curriculum i can teach that very easily that's
4: Mm -hmm.
1: one of my specialties perfect we um, all
4: have our food service background.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I have to ask this question. And I'm sorry to bring it up, but um, do you have any contingency plans in the event that uh, the current pandemic will uh, cause a moratorium? Uh, will continue the moratorium on performances and gatherings?
4: Absolutely. And actually, I'm I'm happy to talk about that because I think it's important uh, that people hear from from arts organizations about how they're dealing with it and how they're planning for it and i have experience at this point on both sides of that table as somebody who's had a lot of things canceled uh, with various degrees of uh taking care of the artists and now i find myself in the position of trying to plan um i of course can't say anything terribly specific because it would need to be approved by our board and our organization and all of that. What I will say is that we have a plan A, which is our current season. We have a plan B, a plan C and a plan D all based on different levels of whatever is happening as we get closer to the date. Um, I would say, and this is not confirmed, but we are as an artist led organization committed to giving some sort of compensation to all of the artists that have reserved their time to be at the festival no matter what happens. Hmm. So even if it ends up being nothing happens, there will still be some sort of support for our artists. And so as we sort of work down from plan A to B to C to D, although we hope that that's not necessary, we are trying to balance the needs of the artists and our possibilities. I would say two of our major concerns are, uh, since we house our musicians with hosts, uh, a lot of older people might even if the, you know, if the bands and the social distance is lifted, uh, I can understand how a lot of those people might not be comfortable having people in their homes. And I feel like even if things are much better, older people might still not feel comfortable going into big crowds which affects our fundraising so these are all the considerations that I'm trying to weigh and we are trying to balance those with with taking care of these artists that we know and love
1: well John Taylor Ward uh, thank you for taking the time uh, today to talk to me about the Lakes Area Music Festival where should um, potential audience members uh, learn more about um, what's happening with Lakes Area and with John Taylor Ward. Absolutely.
4: Um, I would encourage people to visit my website, which is johntaylorward.com. It is due for an update, and this is just the kick in the pants I need to do it. <laughs> and I would say if you're interested in Lakes Area you should visit lakesareymusic.org or find us on Instagram or Facebook. And that goes for me as well, John Taylor Ward and Lakes Area Music.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Well, thanks a heap, and uh, let's hope that it's plan A or plan A-minus at the worst. Exactly.
4: Thank you so much, and it's great to talk to you.
3: And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera.
2: Tonight on our Hall of Fame segment, we are going to take a look at an artist whose uh, breath support lasted as long as her name. And that is Maria (laughs) de Montserrat Viviana Concepcion Caballé y Falk. Uh, better known to most of us as Montserrat Caballé.
6: You need an uh, award just for saying the whole name on the air. That's yeah. that's quality stuff. That's why yes. people come to Opera Box Score.
2: I mean when you come across a name like that you can't leave it
6: out of your presentation notes right?
7: Heavens now. <laughs>
2: uh, Montserrat Caballé is a beloved singer. She died in October 2018 so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of talk about how great she was uh, uh, as a singer then, and that was really when I was able to, to find out how much I appreciated her more than I ever thought that I had. Um, because Cabaye is such an incredibly virtuosic singer uh, with such a beautiful voice, but, it, but the virtuosity doesn't really s- jump out at you the way that like Beverly Sills does or like Joan Sutherland does where you're just like nonstop fireworks, high notes for days. <laughs> um, it, it, it was definitely, it, it's a different sort of skill set that she had, and she really used it, an overlapping one, but, but, it, um, but just a different type of voice. Um, she was born in 1933 to a humble family uh, right around the time, that, that was right around the time the Spanish Civil War was starting. And uh, an early trademark of her career, which started in, in the 1950s, was her versatility. Uh, She was hired right out of the gate for Mozart roles, Richard Strauss roles. Uh, uh, She made her uh, her first big splash in the 50s playing Mimi in in Switzerland. Uh, And then she moved on to really be a specialist in the bel Canto and Verdi schools of singing. But, you know, that's that that's like six different specialties that I just named in one sentence. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, And as I mentioned, she was not initially one of my absolute favorite singers um, because she did just that her her art is really in how expansive she can sing, how how meticulous she can be with phrasing because Mansur Kabe basically had three (laughs) longs and she could hold a note for longer than almost anyone else and then swell right at the very end. Uh, It's like when you read about what people used to say about Farinelli and the castrato singers like that. I feel like that's maybe the closest we've ever come to experiencing singing like that is Montserrat Mm -hmm. Caballé. She got her first big break in 1965 when she stepped in at Carnegie Hall to replace a pregnant Marilyn Horne in the role of Lucrezia Borgia in the Donizetti Opera. Marilyn Horne, who started out singing as a soprano, as you may remember from Oliver's Hall of Fame last year. Um... And the reviews for that were just were rapturous. They they talked about how even after her very first Aria, it was she they say that it was apparent that here was a singer not even of uh not only with a beautifully pure voice, but an outstanding command of vocal style. It was not surprising that so early in the opera the audiences stopped the performance for five minutes with its applause and cheers. Uh, that's from the new york times review of this concert and i have a clip of that aria this is come bello from lucrezia borgia a copy, I learned that role in about a month is is what is how the story goes <laughs> sure. um, and she was so nervous about it because she had a, never actually sung any bel canto before even though that would end up being her specialty um and so she didn't really know she said this i found this interview with her where she said she didn't know what to do with all of that fioratura and the conductor that she was coaching with told her to draw on her experience singing fior deligi from uh, mozart's Così fan tutte. Uh, and so from the very beginning, her her mastery in all of these different styles of singing has a root in trying to get the technique solid first. Uh, and that, that will sound familiar to anyone who's sung, studied singing before, because most m- almost every voice teacher will say, well, we need, we need to give you Mozart to teach you legato, to teach you line, to teach you the very beginning, and to do things that won't hurt you. And Cabier rightly pointed out that the style is not an, is not... The same, you know. Belcanto has a lot more stopping and starting, a lot more push and pull, um, a lot more of these kind of episodes where you can kind of go off and become the star in a way that Mozart's music is not written to allow you to do. Right. Um, and and what she realized in those coaching sessions is that if you keep the undergirding of your vocalism to be based, uh, to to be to be based in singing beautifully. Uh, and respecting the instructions of the composer, she could really do anything, and she did.
1: I was. Um, I, I'm sorry. Before you go on, I, I just want to say that there is a pretty clear relationship between Mozart and Rossini. But when you get all the way to Donizetti, um, it does become more bel canto. But, yeah.
2: I I um I what 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 she was expressing and what I was kind of voicing there is that it, it, it doesn't map immediately onto one being good at one being good at one there are plenty of singers who are good at one and not good at the yeah. other but I also um, I also and, want
1: to say that if anybody has not heard it yet there is a Colin Davis studio recording of Cozy with Caballé as Fiorilegi uh um, Nick, Nicola Guetta is Ferrando Janet Baker is uh, Dorabella. It's a pretty all over the place cast. Uh, not all of them. Ileana Kotrubash. Yeah. As not everybody you would, you would call Mozartian today, but the recording actually is really good because there are so many different approaches to singing uh, in that recording. And Caballé's Fiodaligi was the first Fiodaligi of my innocence and i measure all i measure 780 all, years ago <laughs> i went back in the dinosaurs i measure all fierteliches against Caballé
2: so she was she's such an outstanding musician um there are all kinds of stories about her just like memorizing these roles by sight and learning them by ear and cracking um, open the, the score for the recording <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. um we're really what you come out of that clip is hearing is that even from the very beginning she had an astoundingly beautiful voice it's so clear and brilliant and honeyed um, and even though she was sometimes in reviews com- compared unfavorably to voices like you know leontine price or rosa poncel or joan sutherland um she had this craftsmanship to her singing that really made her able to set herself apart um, and I think you can really hear that on my second clip, which is from the cabaletta to the mad scene of um, Il Pirata. This is live from Paris in 1966. And um, this is very demanding music. It, it, it's demanding technically. It's demanding dramatically. Um, it is not performed very often just because there are very few singers who can do it justice. Um, but, but listen to how she negotiates a fairly sizable voice through all the twists and turns of this music. afraid to dip into her pungent chest voice there and there's a there's a lot of boldness and phrasing and not being afraid to step on the gas to add a little bit of vocal drama uh and i want you to hear how she does that in completely different music as well this is from a live recording of Aida with ricardo as conductor from 1977 uh and listen to how the the long ascent up to the high sea at the end of patria mia just absolutely holds no perils for her uh because she had this lung lung reserve that she could rely on uh, no matter what the situation was in the music. So what really amazes me about that Aida clip in particular is how much of the musical markings on the page she's able to bring to life so faithfully and also how natural she makes it sound. Like uh, she she's summoning the music off of the page, um, which is, I don't think she really gets enough credit for how much she was able to um, cue to those kinds of dynamic instructions because uh, as her career went on, she really ran with this ability that she had to kind of do whatever she wanted. Um, <laughs> uh, and so the recordings where she is maybe a little bit more scru- scrupulous, especially uh, when you're working with someone like Muti who's really going to hold you to what is on the page. Um, it, it, it's just a talent that, that very few would match her in. Um, I was you can say- hear a little... I was going to say that in that
1: Pirata clip, it reminded me of Tamara Wilson. And their tones are very different. Like Tamara Wilson definitely has that more American, you know, long vowel thing going on. But just the way they approach the coloratura and then just like the sudden grab of chest voice that just kind of just, you feel like it was there all along, but she just like kind of dipped her toes. Like, there it is. So, you know, it's there, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, the the legato, like the way that
2: the passage work is done, so legato. It's very exciting. Uh, e- even you don't even need the the like the Beverly Sills interpolated high E's that, <laughs> that she would put into all of these scenarios that they shared. Um, and just to really give a couple examples of how complete her mastery of dynamics and were and uh, I have a couple of clips of the different Liu arias from Turnodo. Uh, And what I want you to listen to here is just how consistent her tone stays as she goes from loud to soft and then soft back to loud and, you know, switch those and reverse them uh, and low to high and vice versa as well. First, Signore Ascolta, and then Tu Katie di gel se cinta, the two arias by Liu from Turandot, and those were from a live performance in Buenos Aires in 1965.
6: Which they presumably never finished due to the audience constantly interrupting for standing ovations.
7: <laughs> I was gonna say, like, they didn't even wait for any of the actors to Katie gel. It was just, yeah, I mean, I agree. I did the same thing, only in my living room, but yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I just think that, um, I mean, I've done this before, so I'm very guilty of it. I've, I'm thinking about the composers of, of these operas we're sampling, like, up there in heaven, listening to us cut and paste their music. And, like, you know, it's more than just that phrase, you know? <laughs> There's
2: a lot. Of- <laughs> I, and, and I was having, I was listening to more of her singing today and be like, oh, I should have included that clip. I should have included this clip. Mm-hmm. I should have included that one there are just so many out there so listeners take it upon yourselves to find to find some other fun hidden treasures someone else who really liked to find and record hidden treasures was monserrat Caballé, um, <laughs> who, who was uh, an advocate for underperformed works mostly italian underperformed works but she recorded uh, a, a lot of rare roles songs arias her uh, the official count of how many roles she performed either in the studio or on stage varies from some counts as low as 50 to some say that it was really over 100 uh just because she was able to learn music so quickly and from such different uh idioms um but but one one role that was she and she also recorded a fair amount of these forgotten bel canto heroines um including one who has really been coming who has come back into the forefront with a number of uh major singers who advocate for this role and that's maria stuarda um, and this next clip is from the finale of Maria Stuarda when I, when I decided that I was going to be talking about Caballé, I knew that I had to include this one. Um, just to give an example of the kind of spin that she could put on these endless high notes. Oh. keeps Giving that a little bit more line, a little bit more line, a little bit more line, so it never loses the spin. Uh, and then when you get to that ascent, from it's a G natural that she's holding for 20 something seconds, and oh, then geez. to have to ascend chromatically up to a B flat is really, uh, you know, it's putting you through the ringer. I mean, it's
6: the third one.
2: I mean,
1: besides exactly. the, the Ville Bastarda line, that is the other reason to stage this opera,
2: that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is listening to listening to your Mary Stewart sing above the whole crowd. Yeah. Um, and that actually brings me to an interesting point about the role of Caballé in opera history. Uh, and just because the role of an opera singer changed greatly over the course of her career from when she started in the 60s and the singers were still really of primary importance. Uh, and since then, the directors, conductors, impresarios have claimed a lot more power over the shape of opera performances and over the industry. Um, and what a lot of people loved about Cabaye, and including m- me, uh, is that she really showed little interest in ceding her power. A- <laughs> and she maintained this persona of old-school diva, benevolent old-school diva, but she was regal. And she was grandiose, and she really earned that her nickname, uh, La Superba, the superb one. Um, and as I mentioned, as I've mentioned a couple times in this segment, I, I want to play two clips next from Arabella that highlight um, that, that, that just highlight how special it was that she was able to sing not only Italian but also German roles as a part of her career. Uh, these are from a live performance in Rome in 1973 that was later released on released on the Orfeo label.
7: The
2: wanted to play you some clips of her singing german music is just because german operatic music puts really different demands on the singer uh there's a lot of there's a lot of times when the singer will have to kind of be sustaining in place while the music or the orchestra music kaleidoscopes around them strauss does this in particular a lot um and cabaret was able to do this so well uh because of her lung capacity and because of her sensitivity and her musicality um but she was also, she was able to really sing in this Germanic style, despite being a true master of the more Italianate style that has a lot more uh, dynamism in it from the, from the singer. Uh, and you see some crossover from the other, other side, Wagnerian singers like Birgit Nilsson or Laini Rieseneck um, tackling these Verdi and Puccini roles. But it almost always involves some sort of compromise, either in the tone, the quality that's ideal, the line of the singer, the timbre, the smoothness, whatever you have it. Um, And I think that Kabea comes off quite well, um, despite some muddy diction, both in the chatty parts of Strauss and that really sorry part of Strauss. And I wanted to pick two clips that that show both elements of that music.
1: I would add that Uh, of the singers who are on the scene today, I do think that Tamara Wilson g- comes pretty close to emulating the, you know, mastery of style that uh, Cabaye has. I mean, we haven't heard uh, Tamara Wilson do anything in French. We haven't really heard her do anything verismo, Vir- but as far as being able to do bel canto and Germanic, uh, those are, are definitely a different, you know, different buckets. You know.
2: Yeah, but what what sets, and I definitely agree. Uh, with your with your primary point there, what is a little bit different about that situation for me is that as an American, she's not really part of one tradition in the same kind of way that Cabaye was really like an heir to the Italian bel canto school by the time her international career really got up and going. Um, and so for someone red blooded uh, um, association to one style of music to really have such an affinity for the other one is not one that is is rare. And it and uh, it is just a little bit different of a situation. Um, but speaking of of, of red blooded, <laughs> uh, Kabe could Yay. at times uh, descend into camp, some, some, camp, <laughs> some campier elements of, of of opera, and I. But I do want to include them here because a, it just shows her her talent, and b, it, it also is an important part of people's relationship with her. Um, as a singer and her continued legacy uh, as as a musical icon uh, that very few other operatic singers have ever achieved. Um, And so these two two examples come at opposite ends of the spectrum. One is this thing that she used to do at the end of Don Carlo, where she would take the last note that's supposed to be held for one measure and hold it for like 25 measures over the orchestra, just blaring off as kind of a a final sign-off uh and then the next one is a clip that you may have heard if you watched the barcelona olympics live in 1992 where she uh collaborates with someone you wouldn't expect I'm So we go from Olympic feats of stamina to uh, the Olympics themselves. I get Olympics. it!
6: I get it! <laughs> Good joke. Very, very
3: funny.
2: I mean, it's funny to laugh at that in retrospect, uh, but both of those singers, both Freddie Mercury and Monserrat Caballé had a ton of respect for each other, and they. she reportedly felt like she had a new lease on life, a newfound freedom that came out of that collaboration to just you know, let it rip. Uh,
7: I also, for the record, if you've not heard the rest of the album that they did together, highly recommend.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's some listening for all you folks out there in quarantine. Uh, And so I just want to bring it back to to a little bit and and to close out with a clip that really, truly made me fall in love with her singing, uh, which is categorized for me by this kind of superhuman sensitivity to breath flow, to legato to dynamics, to flexibility within the vocal line in a way that very few other singers can master. Uh, and where I think she really puts them all together spectacularly is in the closing to the Ave Maria from Verdi's Otello, uh, which is also a plea for humanity uh, and for simplicity, which, uh, and, and, and its simplicity really shines through.
3: This just in, The
1: Two-Minute Drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. The University of Michigan fired David Daniels, a professor of voice and one of the world's leading countertenors, one year after he and his husband were charged with sexually assaulting another singer. It was the first time in more than 60 years that the university's Board of Regents voted to dismiss a tenured faculty member. The board also denied Daniels' severance pay. For some companies, it's still season announcement season. Opernhaus Zurich's 2020-21 season begins in September with 13 productions that includes Barry Kosky's Boris Godunov, 21st Century Works by Pierangelo Baltinoni and Wolfgang Mitterer, and Lisette Oropresa as di Lamamore. Guess we now have time to run the dots and scale on a bunch of these announcements. After a $25 million stimulus from the federal government, members of the National Symphony Orchestra have been given one-week notice. In a conference call Friday night, Rutter told orchestra leaders that the 96 musicians who would receive their last paycheck on April 3rd—bad syntax there—and that they will not be paid until the Arts Center reopens. That's totally my bad, everybody. She also said their health care benefits would stop at the end of May if the Arts Center is still closed at that time. An opera singing doctor in the UK is making headlines for performing a Turandah aria to fellow NHS staff on duty. Alex Aldrin studied medicine at the University of Birmingham, opera at the Royal Academy of Music, and works at the Royal London Hospital. A fellow healthcare worker posted his performance of Dorma through his protective face mask to Twitter. In a follow-up to last week, Opera Australia has extended a financial lifeline to more than 600 staff who have been temporarily stood down because of the the pandemic. Those stood down will be put on half salary and access long service leave, leave, giving them up to 80% of their regular salary. The move comes on the heels of Opera Australia's musicians protesting with instruments at the organization's main offices last week. Placido Domingo has been hospitalized in Acapulco, Mexico, with complications related to COVID-19. In a statement, Domingo's spokesperson reported that his condition is currently stable and that he will remain in the hospital as long as the doctors find it necessary until a hope for full recovery. Among the many cancellations resulting from coronavirus pandemic was a recital tour featuring two great artists of their generation, Renee Fleming and Evgeny Kisson. Like many of us trying to practice our art while practicing social distancing, Fleming and Kissen released a video performance of Schubert's Ave Maria with the audience call to action to donate to AGMA's Relief Fund, the artist's Relief Tree, and the New Music Solidarity Fund, adding, please be safe, be well, and if you can't donate, just keep the music playing, because that helps too. Speaking of AGMA, the union's relief fund has received over $181,000 from Bernie Sanders' supporters. In a statement released to union members, Sanders' supporters were encouraged to contribute what they could, noting that donations would be divided evenly between the AGMA relief fund and nine other charities. The influx comes at a time when the fund needs it the most, with the number of requests for assistance in the last two weeks eclipsing what the relief fund had seen in the last three years combined. Scottish Opera has repurposed trucks ordinarily used to transport its set to venues in order to help restock supermarkets. Rather than transport the set for their uh, Midsummer Night's Dream to Edinburgh, postponed until further notice, its trucks have been used to deliver supplies to Tesco supermarkets, which are facing unprecedented demand during the crisis. Friend of the show Opera Philadelphia announced March 24th that the coronavirus pandemic has forced the company to postpone its scheduled spring performances of Madam Butterfly until 2022, with all contracted artists invited to return to their roles at that time. According to the company's statement, the show has been projected to be Opera Philadelphia's biggest of the season, and cancellation will result in $3 million loss in anticipated revenue. Meanwhile, the company invites you to visit their website and steal scenes from recent productions like the Berioski Magic Flute as backdrops to your next Zoom meeting. According to a musician survey, to a musician survey in England, uh, UK musicians have already lost an estimated 139.100. Oh, that's I don't know how to read pounds. 13.9 million pounds. How about that in earnings because of the coronavirus. That pound symbol just really messed me up, guys. The organization has 32,000 members and it is the main trade union for the sector in the UK. And 90% of the survey's 4,100 respondents said their income had already been affected. And just for fun, check out the baritoneblog.com for Lucas Meacham's 10 Things to Do During a Quarantine as an Opera Singer. Besides recommending lip trills and online networking, the social media savvy baritone also suggests that you watch lots of opera. Listen to how they phrase a melody, how they use the vibrato, their gestures, their composure, etc., and see what you can learn, he says. We agree, but he forgot to mention to listen to the Opera box score archives. Exit stage right, four-time Tony Award-winning playwright and librettist Terrence McNally died on Tuesday in Sarasota, Florida at the age of 81. The cause was complications of the coronavirus after chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. McNally's play Masterclass, dramatizing the Juilliard workshops of opera diva Maria Callas, won both the 1996 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding New Play and the 96 Tony Award for Best Play. Avant-garde composer Krzysztof Penderecki died Sunday at the age of 86. The Polish-born Penderecki first found international acclaim with the pivotal Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. Over a long career of orchestral works, operas, choral works, and concertos, he won four Grammys, most recently for Best Choral Performance in 2016. Penderecki's music jumped from the concert hall to popular culture, turning up in films like The Exorcist, The Shining, Wild at Heart, and Island Empire. And on this day, March 30th, it's the birthday anniversary of American tenor Barry Morrell. In 1786, Luigi Carabini's opera, opera seria Il Giulio Sabino, premiered in London. I'm sure Riccardo Muti has a plan to record that someday. And Italian composer Tommaso Traetta was born in 1727, and that's your two-minute drill. On air and get your voice heard currently while we're podcast only. But we do want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight, and we also want you to submit your testimonial about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected your career, your projects, your performances, your listening. Please submit a voice memo, you can give us an mp3 or a WAV file. To operaboxscore at gmail.com, and we plan to play some of those in the coming episodes.
6: And before we get too far, I just wanna say, not that easy, is it, Oliver? Huh? <laughs> to well, read all those
1: words. I should write out uh numbers because to see like 19.9K with a pound sign in front of it just makes it look like a word in Greek, Oliver.
6: I will sudden. also I will also really, uh, really turn the tables on you and correct you. You said "Island Empire." The film is inland. Inland. Oh my
1: God, inland empire. <laughs> At least I didn't say incest empire.
2: <laughs> he normally waits until film. we're done recording before he gives corrections. Yeah. This, Ooh, this coronavirus, sense. coronavirus reality. <laughs> is All right. So we have really a long episode. We
1: have a long episode already. So let's cut to the chase here. I think Ashley wanted to talk about University of Michigan.
7: Well, I I do want to talk about University of Michigan and I want to talk about it for a long time, but I won't because we have a long show. Um the one thing that I really want to mention is that this is sort of the first the first set of these allegations in this vein in our art form in our genre that has a true punishment. Um I mean, there's still a possibility of some uh, some criminal charges and prosecution down the line, but this is the first time we've seen a singer lose something of great value to them as a direct result of their inappropriate behavior. I mean, say what you will about Placido, like no longer performing in Agma, whatever, or, or no longer performing in American Houses, dropping out of Agma, whatever. I it's he's not losing. As much as I think something like a tenured music faculty position at the University of Michigan provided him, he's also not getting severance. He's, you know, there are a lot of ways in which people will leave tenured positions but still be able to get some kickbacks from you know, sort of off and under and beside tables. Um, and this feels like a real, a, a real actual punishment that the university has really taken seriously. It's taken a while, but they've they've taken it very seriously so I just I think it's a really important I feel like this will be a moment if anybody's ever going to write a full narrative of the fallout of you know sort of uh sexual transgressions in this specific era of opera and classical music this is going to be one of the moments that's discussed as the first real punishment. And does anyone have anything else to say?
1: <laughs> no. They I mean so, well, good. When, we're so talk, <laughs> when we're talking about these subjects and I feel like somebody has an authoritative uh, take on it, I just feel like, oh, I better just be quiet so I don't say something that's going to get me in the end, you know, because I've, I've made the mistake <laughs> over – even before this podcast existed of coming to people's defense and thinking that people are snowflakes and people are, you know, whatever, not – uh, malicious and uh, boy, have I been wrong. So,
7: <laughs> well, the other thing about this guy is, um, in in a lot of ways, for sort of modern, high voiced CT singers of of our generation and the mm-hmm. generation for us, there weren't. You know, if you're talking about you know people training as sopranos, people training as tenors, people training even as baritones and mezzos you know, in, in your instruction, you're always referred back to recordings. It's like, you okay, Go if you're a soprano, okay, you need to listen to Caballé. you need to listen to uh, Leontine Price, you need to listen to Beverly Sills. For for a lot of countertenors, when that first became a thing again in sort of the 90s, there, there weren't a lot of folks that people could really look to for role models, inspiration, recordings. David Daniels was like the guy that kind of pioneered a lot of it. I ended up at a program, a music program with... A, a, a strangely exorbitant amount of counter tenors, given how small it was and that it was in a rural part of the south. Um, but he was—he was the guy. He, was he the broke guy the
1: counter tenor glass ceiling.
7: That's what it is. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, but for you know, I have a couple of colleagues who are—one is singing over as a CT in Germany, and one uh, sang as a CT a couple of places here in the U.S. and is now teaching at a university. And this was like their guy, their hero, this was the guy that showed them that it was okay to pursue the career that they have. And now he's fallen. So in addition to, yes, this is the first time someone's been punished, there, there's a real, you know, we see heroes fall all the time, but there's something kind of different about this one because it, it was so new and he's still so young. And the people that he inspired to go on and make careers with this are also still very young. So there's just... I, there's mean, a yeah, lot, I mean, a lot, whole
1: generation of countertenders sort special. of exploded after his after his career, you know, like he you can credit right. a lot of people coming forward and declaring themselves countertenders, you know.
7: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, some people should have and some people shouldn't have. But no, most of them were great. And uh, yeah, so there's just I don't know. There's something about this moment specifically that I think is going to stand out when we're looking back on this a few years from now.
1: Wesley, we haven't heard much from you this episode. What do you, what do you got uh, on this Two Minute Joe that you want to respond to?
6: I think the, uh, the thing that jumped out to me obviously, we're going to have a lot of uh, coronavirus related stories, at least for the next few episodes. Uh, and let's be real, most of them are going to be bummers. It'll be beautiful uh, by but- Easter, I promise. i
7: tried to find good news to put on there too
6: the well that's what i wanted to point out the scottish opera um using uh trucks to transport um uh supermarket foods i think is a great story and this is something that we're starting to see uh in a lot of theater companies Uh, i read just this week i think it was a local company i can't remember which one uh, but their their costume uh, shop is, you know, um, sewing up, like, masks and, and things like that. And just seeing arts organizations, which are also, you know, very much suffering financially in this sort of a, a whole affair, uh, really offering what they have to help out in what ways they can, and in, in, in some ways, in ways that, you know, only they can help out with, I think is just so cool to see. And I think we'll be seeing more stories like this with opera companies uh, using whatever resources they have to assist. Because in in times of crisis, I like to believe um, that, uh, you know, people come together and really try to get greater humanity through in whatever way they can. And um, it's one of those things where opera is so in the public mind, often thought of as separate, elitist, not connected to the people. Um, seeing seeing that prove wrong in such a dramatic and kind of heartwarming way uh, is, it just, you know, it's exactly what I need during the whole uh, social distancing affair that we are all now experiencing. <laughs> and here
1: I was thinking you were going to geek out about the Zurich Opera House season. Which...
6: Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. This season slaps, but <laughs> don't get me wrong. Oh god, you heard it's it here first, cool folks.
1: <laughs> this season slaps. It's a it slaps. Season. That's what oh, they're gonna put them in the press kit. Um, Matt, anything from the two-minute drill you wanted to talk about? Matt Cummings, he's all talked out. Um,
2: I was. Oh my gosh, I couldn't get mute off of my phone. This is you know, this is a brave new world for us all. <laughs> We're doing it. Uh, well, thank you to everyone who has been donating and uh, soliciting donations for the, the various relief funds uh, for people whose livelihoods and careers are very suddenly up in, up in smoke, it feels like. Uh, there's, there's a lot that can be said about uh, f- finances, and we have said a lot of it so far, but it's good to see that that spirit of community is really pulling people together in, in, in some ways during this difficult time.
1: I just want to say that Yevgeny Kissin was my first virtuoso pianist. I know that we all are different ages, and maybe when you first were exposed to, like, a Rachmaninoff piano concerto, something like that, it was a certain performance that you heard. He's like, oh, my God, I never knew that piano could be so cool. Yevgeny Kisson was that person for me when I was a little kid. And I've heard so many stories about what he's like in real life and how... Much he practices and maybe never gets sunlight and doesn't really talk to humans or something like that. There's all sorts of you know legends about his sort of yeah, like that, yeah. yeah sort of odd personality. But credit to opera singers who know how to um, get in front of a camera and do something that's I mean especially Renee Fleming like to try a new medium to just be out there and you know think about what the audience is feeling. Renee Fleming is so skilled and she's just so smooth and to have her doing this you know video virtual performance with Yevgeny Kissin as her collaborator and he's a brilliant pianist I will never take anything away from him but just to watch this video and see how he talks to the camera and how she talks to the camera it's night and day and it's it's sort of enjoyable to see that contrast and I guess that's all we're talking about today. Um, we'll come back to you shortly with our good call, bad calls.
3: Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
1: Good calls, bad calls from our Zoom podcast meeting. Uh, who would like to start? <laughs> I'll start. Um, let's let's
7: do the bad and then the good. Bad news is, oh God, Terence McGalley and, and Penderecki. One, oh God, two people deeply pivotal in parts of my my music and drama education. They will be sorely missed. Um, but the who was the, the
1: second one after Terence Uh Christoph
7: Penderecki. Okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there there are stories for other days about how much from both of those those men indirectly. Um, but I will tell you. The, there's this guy, and his name is Sid R. Duke, and apparently he does a whole bunch of different types of music videos, uh, and he has done a mashup. he released Beethoven's lovely recognizable piano tune in five, so it's instead of four it's five release. Um, it's like Brubeck and Beethoven had a baby. and I read the description I was like, this is dumb. There's no way I'm gonna like this. Um, and then I listened to it and was like, I love this. So that's my good call this week. I have a good call. Uh, hold on, hold on, um, on, a, hold on a second. Obviously, there's oh. lots of... I uh... hope oh, play it.
1: Aha, uh-huh. okay. That's going to be it's on... It's so fun! That's on ClassicFM.com forward slash composers forward slash Beethoven forward slash Furley's Take 5 jazz version. <laughs> Go find it. Okay. <laughs> go on weston sorry to cut you off
6: uh so my good call obviously there's lots of opera companies doing uh, um uh, broadcasts of past shows that they've done um but i wanted to highlight one in particular that isn't getting uh quite as much love i think uh if you, uh, beth morrison projects is doing uh one new opera a week they produce um uh operas um or help contribute money towards productions uh, the one this week is uh, a song from the uproar by Missy Mazzoli. Uh, so if you've been seeing lots of, uh, uh, you know, classic like Puccini, time, uh, we just had Wagner week. All this is good. Um, but really check out BethMorrisonProjects.com uh, for their new operas streaming weekly. They just did Dog Days last week by a friend of the show, David T. Little, uh, Oliver, and I both saw that one live, and we know it's it, it was it was amazing. And seeing it again, um, it, it's so hard sometimes to find good performances of new works, and this is a great way to uh, see some during
1: the quarantine. Matt, I'm coming to you in a second. I just want to say that uh, my main social media platform is Facebook, and there is this Facebook video going around uh, of this uh, drag. Queen, I guess we'll call her, named Martina Ahotho, uh, Ahotho, maybe I'm saying it wrong, um, and it's amazing, she's actually singing uh, Mon Coeur, and uh, the little kind of caption says, Before Janae, Mar- Janae Bridges is solidified as the Dalai Lava generation, I'd like, to like you all to consider another friend for the title. Her name is Martina Ahotho. The sister of Maria Fallis and Taint Nessa. She was, until recently, an undiscovered talent. However, I've spent my quarantine coaching her to perfection, and I'm so proud of her progress. And here is a little bit of that.
3: <laughs> sister, oh,
1: So go find that video because it's it's actually really good and uh, pretty impressive. And there's lots of legs and great wigs and whatnot. So.
3: And Matt. We got a
1: new Hall of
2: Fame contender. <laughs> yes.
3: Ooh, I like it.
2: Uh, in, in a world brimming full of opera available on demand, my entertainment for the last week has actually been the Tiger King series on Netflix. And oh, I can't wait too. for the operatic oh. annotation of it because y'all buckle
1: up after I finish dinner I'm literally gonna watch the last two episodes with my friends
2: so um, oh my it. word <laughs>
3: If I like... don't
7: get to play Carol Baskin someday <laughs> you... I will not have fulfilled my life goal
2: Ashley, you were born to play Carol Baskin so
1: do do we think that um, Joe uh, exotic is a countertenor exotic? or is he a tenor? What what should be his voice?
7: I think. Well, first of all, the voice you hear in his country songs is not him. Oh, yeah. uh, he's actually singing over a, a track. There's a there, a guy who did a podcast about the Tiger King and and the other peripheral characters, and he he spilled the beans that he was singing to somebody else's track. But no, that was the thing that really got to me because I was listening to it and I was like, "Huh, that's interesting." But that voice sounds way too low to come out of that high you know west arkansas east oklahoma nasal ping that he has i'm like he's a tenor he's a legit tenor
1: that's could be our stunt casting is that we can actually have maybe his i mean his more like recitative sections uh sung by one voice and then his uh when he goes into his songs another voice <sighs> sings it
2: A baritone, a bear hunk. We're all about verisimilitude here on Opera
1: Box (laughs) (laughs) Score. We will think, we will think more about casting the Tiger King opera, and we'll bring that to you as soon as we have that together. (laughs) Uh, But back, back to you, George, (laughs) in your uh, North Side of Chicago studio.
3: Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: Thanks a bunch, team. Sending it back to me here in the Ravenswood Studio. I gotta say, if you're a parent right now, all the live streaming of opera in the world, in my opinion, does you no good. Because you are likely teaching your own kids now for the foreseeable future. Maybe I'm wrong. If you have kids and you're in this business, let me know how you're dealing with this pandemic, how you're mixing your career, and how you're mixing your children. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Tweet us at Operaboxscore. Post on our Facebook page. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score, and this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera for as long as it takes. We're back with an all-new podcast next Tuesday, April seven. More opera news, more hot takes, more technology. Technology. Join us.